We're almost at the end of the last 40 days of Jesus' life. Since uh, Resurrection Sunday, we've been looking at the, the final 40 days before Jesus ascended to heaven. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at his ascension. But um, it, it's, it's going to be based on this uh, passage of Scripture that was uh, found in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, After his suffering, and this is written by Dr. Luke, After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men, his followers, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, in his last 40 days, he did a lot of really important things. The most important one was to show himself that he was alive and to speak about his kingdom, to tell his followers, okay, what comes next? And that's what we're going to turn to today. But before we do, um, since it's May, and since all you students know it's test time, we're going to have a test this morning. We're going to start with a test. It's 10 questions. Let's see how you do. All you have to do is to identify the mission statement who the mission statement refers to. So here it goes. Here's number one. To give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Yeah, you can say it out loud. Facebook, good. Why were those voices all young that said that one? Not all voices. <laughs> I caught. Okay, here we go. To be the Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they might want to buy online and endeavors to offer its customers the lowest possible prices. Amazon. Oh, you, oh I heard lots of Okay. To connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. LinkedIn. Whoa, you're getting better. LinkedIn. Now, to build the web's most convenient, secure, cost-effective payment solution. Oh, you're on a roll. By the way, I did this myself. I got four out of 10 right. And you're already way past me. Here we go. To help bring creative projects to life. Oh, ah, got you. Kickstarter. There we go. Okay, here we go. Number six, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Google. Good. Establish blank as the premier purveyor of the finest coffee in the world. Well, no one's groaning. I thought that was our, our, our coffee over here. I think that's the best. In the world while maintaining our uncompromising principles while we grow. Starbucks. Okay. To refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. Who? Coca-Cola. Yes, it is Coca-Cola. Good. To save people money so they can live better. Walmart. Yes. Blank is evolving the way the world moves. By seamlessly connecting riders to drivers through our apps, we make cities more accessible, opening up more possibilities for riders and more business for drivers. Uber. Uber. Oh, my. You are so good. But now, here's the catch. You see, every company, I think every company probably almost in the world, certainly every one of the Fortune 500 companies, every single one of them, has a mission statement, most of which you got right. So now here's my question. 
There is no institution in our world that is even close to the size, the wealth, or the impact of the Church of Jesus Christ. The numbers are something like 2.2 billion people who claim that. None of these companies have anything close to that. And so I ask you the question, what is our mission statement? Now, if I ask that question, let's say I go to one of the 67 churches here in this city. And I go to every single one of these churches and I just stand up before the people and say, okay, what is, what is your mission as a church that takes the name of Jesus? What's your mission? And I would submit to you that you're going to get about 65 different answers. And that is sick. It's sick. It's so sick because our mission is crystal clear. There is no question what our mission is. We might have different vision statements. That is a vision statement. That is not our mission. Every church in the world should have a different vision that fits them uniquely. But every single church that's ever existed and does exist or will ever exist should have the exact same mission statement. Because Jesus told us what it was. And yet we don't. Churches do not have a clue what our mission is. And even if we do know what our mission is, we aren't doing it. And so, here's our mission statement. These are given to us just before Jesus left this earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There it is. This is called, as you know, the Great Commission. However, the Great uh, Commission is turned in our world to be the Great Omission. There are many things we're doing today, but almost all people who look at the American church say the one thing that we're not doing is making disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is our mission statement. There should never have existed, there should never exist any church ever that takes the name of Jesus that doesn't realize that our mission is to make disciples, that means followers, of Jesus Christ of all the nations. That's it. Now that's going to take a million different forms and different bodies, how we do it, what we emphasize of that, but that is our mission. And so today we're going to look at the passage which is called the Great Commission, and I trust in this church it will not be the Great Omission. The text, Matthew chapter 28 and verses 16 to 20. Now the Great Commission, the words that you saw up there, is very easy to divide into several sections. But it's not readily apparent in English because the English is a little bit, the Greek is a little bit interesting. Let me break it down for you. It begins with a preamble. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now just stop. Can you imagine any human being saying that? All authority in the whole, not this world, but all of the heavens, everything belongs to me. And then we compare him to anybody else. It's utterly ridiculous. If what he said is true, he does not have any peers. There's nobody. There's no one in heaven. 
No one on earth, no one under the earth, no one. There's only Jesus. That's it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now what's next is there's one command. You see, in, in English, a participle, we go back to your English class in high school, a participle is a, a verb that is turned, that's used as a modifier, usually ending in ing. But the main command is make disciples. That's the imperative. And then it tells us by three modifying words, all ending with ing, though they don't appear this way in English. It's have, going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are the three ing words. Those are participles. And they tell us how and what it looks like. And then it ends with the postscript. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. A single command. Go make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them. Going, first of all, baptizing and teaching. And then Jesus promises his presence. Let's look at it together. First of all, it begins with all authority. That is a stunningly sweeping statement. Um, in fact, all is the main word in the Great Commission. It appears actually four times in Greek. All authority in heaven and in all the earth has been given to me to go to all the nations and with all things and all the days. All is the main word in the Great Commission. All authority. Now, somebody says, well, all authority. Well, all authority in the United States? All authority in the school system? All authority in First Baptist Church? No, no. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, by the way, in the life of Jesus, authority comes up a lot of times. He had, from the beginning of his public ministry, he demonstrates authority over Satan. He, so sometimes we fear of Satan, but remember, Satan has been defeated. All authority belongs to Jesus, not Satan. It's his authority. Greater is he. he. Remember he said he taught with authority, which was stunning because Jesus hadn't been to seminary. He was, he was seminary. He was the truth. He didn't go to some formal schooling, but when they heard him speak, the, the, the people thought, whoa, this guy's different. He preaches with authority. You see, in that society, young people were not allowed to speak other than quoting the great rabbis. Rabbi Hillel said, Rabbi Shammai said, Akiba said, and Jesus said, I say to you, they said, you can't do that. You have to quote the great rabbis. He says, oh no, I don't. And the people, when they heard him, they said, he teaches, he's different. He teaches with authority. And he healed authoritatively, uh, the Bible tells us. He, the, 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 um, when, when there were um, uh, demons in people, he commanded them to come out of people. When people were ill, he commanded them to, to rise up, to take up their bed and walk. He was authoritatively. And then he, there was a person, first of all, Jesus said, I, I, I forgive your sins. And they said, you can't do that. Only God can do that. He said, so that you will know that I have authority to forgive sins. 
I will say to this man, pick up your bed and walk. He had authority to heal. He had authority to forgive sins. The Bible tells us he, he delegated then his authority to his disciples. He said, now in my name, I want you to cast out demons. I want you to be the ones um, to, to perform miracles in my name, by my authority. And then, listen to this one. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He says, I have authority over all things. And then, remember what he did? He was in, um, in the temple, and he found out the temple had been turned into a place of commerce. And Jesus was ticked off about that. So he cleaned, uh, cleaned out the, the, the money changers and the people making a, ripping off the people. And he said, this is my father's house. And they said, by what authority do you do this? Was their response to him. And then he said, I have authority to give eternal life. That's pretty amazing stuff. Jesus has been vested with all authority over everything on earth and in heaven. That's where the Great Commission starts, which is pretty important because um, we can live in this world with incredible confidence because the one that we follow is the person who has all authority. Now, it gets better. In the book of Revelation, one of the most beautiful passages about Jesus is actually in chapter 5. Revelation is sometimes called the fifth gospel. The first four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, show Jesus as the suffering servant, living as a servant and dying on the cross for our sins. But in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus now as the exalted one at the right hand of the Father. And in, in Revelation chapter 5, you have this incredible scene in heaven. And in this scene in heaven, you find... Um, uh, here's how, this is how it reads. I'm going to start in verse 1 in chapter 5. Then I saw, this is John writing, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now this seals... That's it, the documents back then. They didn't have books. They had seals like this. And then um, the seals, then this, this scroll would have seals that sealed it. And only the person who was authorized to open the scroll could take off those seals. And probably what these seals are, what's in this scroll is the, the future history of humanity. Who has the right to take the seals and open the scroll? And a great angel says, they, John starts crying. Because there's no one worthy. Not a single one of us is worthy. And then an angel steps forward and says, there is one who is worthy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. No one was worthy. Then, one of the, then I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, in this world, there's only one person who's worthy. There's only one person who, it, it, who would be allowed to hold the whole world in his hands. There's only one. Now, that's a problem. We live in a world in which this claim that I've just said to you is our words of death. We live in a world today in which when we proclaim Jesus, we do so in a world that hates what we have to say. Because you see, when we say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that is an exclusive claim. Jesus is the one and only way to God. There is no other. When we say this, we are making an explosive claim in a world that has all kinds of different religions. We are saying something that is so politically incorrect, it could almost get us killed. We are saying something that is completely non-pluralistic in this culture that says there are many ways to the God or the gods. We're saying something that is extremely restrictive and narrow and, if you will, bigoted. When we say Jesus is the only way, there is no salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must, must be saved. Now, since this is our message, as Christians, we are going to have to learn to live in a society and humbly accept ridicule and scorn and hatred and name-calling and vitriol and maybe even persecution because our central message is increasingly offensive. So the question is, are we willing to stand on what Jesus said? Jesus has no peers. There's no earthly leader of any kind that belongs in the same sentence with Jesus. There is no other name in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one who has ever lived or ever will live that can compare to Jesus. And if you're going to listen to anyone, the first person you should listen to is always Jesus. All other supposed ways pale in comparison to the one who has all authority. That's where it starts. And now what's his command? His command is make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Here's how Jesus said it. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Um, a disciple is simply somebody who is a follower. Now, what, what do we make in churches? We're, we make converts. Those are people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Increasingly in America, over the last 50 years, we've made consumers, people that believe that the church is another business that appeals to its consumers. And so we, we, we have consumers. We, we make cheerleaders. We make spectators. We make volunteers. We make nice people. We make do-gooders. We make all kinds of things, and those are good, but that is not our central mission. 
Our central mission is to make followers of Jesus Christ. Now, how do you make followers of Jesus Christ? Well, in this passage in Acts chapter 1, it says you need empowerment. It doesn't say you shall pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and do this. It says, no, you will receive power. The power doesn't come from inside of us. It comes from God, from His Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Someone has pictured it this way. God says, if you're going to be my witnesses, you're going to be followers of me, start at home. That's Jerusalem. And then as you branch out, maybe a wider sphere would be like uh, this county or this state. And then if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and bring the gospel to all the nations, you've got to step outside of your own culture into other cultures, like the Samaritans, a different culture than the Jewish people. But that's not the end. You're to, we're to take this message and make disciples to the ends of the earth. And that's why one of the reasons we have missionaries is to send them to the ends of the earth, which First Baptist Church does. Because that's our mission. That's what Jesus said we're supposed to do. Now the problem is, too often what we do as churches is we we're, we're making, it says, go and make churchgoers. He didn't say go and make churchgoers. He said go and make disciples. Here are some of the differences. A churchgoer is a spectator, like you're doing right now. You're spectating me. I'm working, you're spectating. But we're not, a, a disciple is not a spectator. A disciple is a player. It's someone who's in the game. And if you've ever played a game like football, you know there's a big difference between a spectator and a player. The spectators are up there in the stands. They say, stupid quarterback, you missed an open man. <laughs> oh, yeah, I played quarterback. You tried to hit, see all the open men with a 300-pound person coming at you. <laughs> you see, it's not that easy. It's very easy in the stands where you can eat your popcorn and you're nice and, 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 and it's really easy to see the errors of the people down on the playing field. But you go down there and try it. You get down there in the field and you have those people coming after you trying to kill you. You try that. It's a lot different. But you see, we're players. And, and by the way, oftentimes if you're not a player in a church, you become a critic. That's a really bad situation when you got a bunch of critics and not many players because the players are running out of steam down there and the critics are up there saying how bad they're doing. But that's not how God put this. That's not a disciple. And by the way, you cannot become a true disciple in the stands. You can't do it. You've got to get on the field. You've got to put on the uniform. You've got to get out there and get hit. That's how you become a disciple. That's how we grow. You've got to get in the weight room. That's Another one is consumers. Um, this, is a, a one, this is probably the biggest problem in the Christian church in America today. For about 50 years now, we have, been, we have been dominated by a view of churches that is basically built on find the consumers in the society and give them what they want. They want someone to take care of their children. We can do it. We want someone to take care of our youth because they're out of control. We can do it. We have youth ministries, children's ministries. We have all kinds of things appealing to consumers. But what about when the consumers say, well, we want you to agree with our sexual ethics. So we can't do that. Wait a minute. I thought you were here to meet my needs. No, we're not here to meet your needs necessarily. 
We're here to follow Christ. And sometimes our needs as consumers are not what God would want for us. You see, we're not in the business of just trying to, to give you what you want to help you have a happy life, though we do want you to be happy and a happy marriage. We do want you to have a good marriage. But how do you become a disciple? You have to work. We become servants. Here, Jesus' brother James said, don't be just hearers of the word, but doers. And you remember his, last, his next words? Deceiving yourself. If you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're going to start to think of yourself falsely. You're going to think, yeah, I'm hot stuff. No, you're not. But you might think so. A, a, a churchgoer sees church as one of the hobbies, one of the many hobbies in your life. But a disciple, it's not a hobby. This is who we are. This is our work. This is our life. So often a churchgoer um, is involved because they, they're guilty. Oh, i got to go to church. It's Sunday after all. Sunday morning, got to be there. No, no, no. That, that's not how you find a disciple. A disciple is motivated by God's grace. Look what God has done through us for us through Jesus Christ. The very cre my creator died on the cross for me. He loves me. He's got my name engraved on his hands. That's what motivates us. It's not because we've got to. You don't have to be a disciple. It's a privilege because someone loves us an awful lot. We're called to make disciples. Here's the definition. A disciple of Jesus is someone who has come to him for eternal life, claimed him as our Savior and our God, and has embarked upon the life of following him. That's a disciple. And I hope and believe that every one of you is in fact a disciple. We've embarked on a life of following Jesus. It doesn't say we've, we're, we're fully, we're down the road very far. We've embarked. That's, that's who we are. Well, now the, uh, the, in this little mandate or this commission, Jesus is going to say, how do you do it? And that's where we have our three participles, our ING words. You do it by going, you do it by baptizing, and you do it by teaching to obey. That's what he says. Therefore, go. Actually, the word there is going. Therefore, going, make disciples of all nations. Now, what does it mean to go? Um, it means um, to go. That's, that's what it means. I've got to really make that one a toughie, didn't it? Go means you actually do something. You don't just sit. You go. Go is an action word. We, means you take initiative, means you get off your duff and you do something. So if you're going to make disciples, it's not going to happen to you in the easy chair in front of the television or your technological device. It's not going to happen. You've got to go, take initiative, got to go. Now, what are we supposed to, this goer facet of being a disciple has some modifiers that Jesus says, or in the Bible it says. One, a goer is somebody who is a witness. What is a witness? It's not that hard. All a witness is is somebody who sees and says. If a witness, and I've been a witness, and I got in trouble on the stand for doing this, because I tried to elaborate, and the judge had to caution me. He says, you cannot do that. You just answer the questions. Tell what you saw. That's all. A witness, we don't say, well, I speculate about it. If you follow Jesus, this is what will happen in your life. Forget it. Tell us what you saw and, 
And then say what you saw. What has, what's God done in your life? That's a witness. The second thing we're called to be is good newsers. We're people who simply not only tell what God has done in our life, that's a witness, but tell what the gospel is simply and accurately. And that's real easy too. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. That's the gospel. It's good news because we've all got sin and we need forgiveness. Jesus died for those sins and he rose again from the dead, opening up eternal life for us. We're called ambassadors. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is one who represents a sovereign in a foreign land. That's who we are. When we go, wherever we go, where we go to school, where we go to work, wherever we go, we're ambassadors. I represent my sovereign, who is Jesus, wherever I am. And we're reflectors. Let, this is the words of Jesus, let your life so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We reflect Jesus by how we live our lives. Those are some of the things that we're supposed to go and do. Going, then baptizing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Of course, first of all, this is Trinitarian. It's a declaration of Jesus' deity. And by the way, the word name there is singular. It's not plural. It doesn't say baptizing them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that. It says baptizing them in the name, because there's only one God, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. What does it mean to baptize? Well, one of the oldest uses of the word baptizo is from 200 BC. Somebody, his name, by the way, is, he's a physician and he's a poet named Nicander. He is describing in something he wrote about how to make pickles. And he said the first thing you do with a pickle, with the cucumber, is you dip it, that's bopto, you dip it into hot water. And then you baptizo it into vinegar. You immerse it, you dunk it into vinegar. That's how you make pickles. He says, well, I guess that's what we do when we baptize. We make pickles out of us. No, we don't leave us in there long enough. You leave the cucumber in there long enough. But, but that's the whole point of baptism. Is it's just a symbol that we have identified ourselves, every part of us, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been immersed in His death for us, His burial, His resurrection. That's us. That's our identity now. We have been, we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. It's his crucifixion that took our sins for us. It's his burial that, 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 that demonstrated that he was dead. He actually did die for us. And his resurrection, he opened up eternal life to us. We identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We're pickled, if you will, by him. And then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And uh, it doesn't say teaching them. And that's what we often find ourselves doing in churches, is we say the essence is we got to just teach people the Word of God. And of course we need to do that. But it goes beyond that. Jesus said, teach them to obey. It's not just an academic uh, exercise. It, it's not enough just to come to First Baptist Church and look forward to good teaching. 
in Sunday school classes, in the youth ministry, uh, here in the worship service. That's nice. But the point is, teach to obey. And that's what we sang about, actually, this morning. Well, it ends. Well, by the way, um, we disciples are, we're all disciples. We're to be a disciple. And then our task is to make disciples. And to whom is that given? It's not given to me alone. It's given to all of us. Well, Jesus ends with a promise. His promise is, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the end of Matthew's gospel. These are his last words. And what a way to conclude. He says, okay, this is a pretty big task I give you. I want you to take this message of mine and take it to the whole world. And it's going to be discouraging at times because you'll, you'll arouse opposition. Remember, for 300 years, the church was persecuted. It's not going to be easy. But don't think I'm going to leave you on your own. I'm with you always until Jesus himself will start to undo those seals on this great scroll and will unload the future of all humanity and usher in the millennium and then the new heavens and the new earth. And why can he do that? Because he has all authority. There's a story that's told. It's a legend. None of it's, of course, true. But it's interesting. It tells the time when Jesus now left this earth, ascended into heaven, and he arrives back in heaven. And there he's greeted by Gabriel. And Gabriel, when he sees Jesus, he starts to frown and he, because he sees the scars on Jesus' hands. And... Uh, and, and, and he knows some of what Jesus has been through. And Gabriel says, Master, you suffered terribly for those people down on earth, didn't you? Jesus said, yes, I did. Gabriel said, they must all know about your life and your forgiveness. They have all heard about your death and resurrection. No, not yet, said Jesus. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know about my death and resurrection. Gabriel looked perplexed. Then he asked, Well, how will everyone find out about your wonderful life, your sacrificial death, and your triumphant resurrection? <coughs> Jesus said, Well, I've asked Peter and James and John and a handful of friends to, um, to tell other people about it. And when other people hear and believe, they will tell others. And by and by, the whole planet will hear the message. Still frowning, the angel responded, But Jesus, you know what these people on earth are like. What if Peter and James and John get tired? What if they tell the story and then the next generation gets all involved in other pursuits? What if way down in the 21st century, people aren't committed any longer to your commission? Have you made any other plans? The Lamb of God looked directly at the angel of God and said, I have no other plan counting on them. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we proclaim the name of Jesus. But what's going to happen after us? Now to us has been given this task that Jesus first gave to his disciples to bring the gospel to all nations. And our task is to pick that up and do what he said. Let's do it.
Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this incredible mission you gave to us. I'm especially grateful that you have all the authority and every right to do it. Increasingly in this society, that message doesn't, just doesn't ring well because so many people hate it. May we never, ever hate anyone in response. But boy, may we also love you enough that we are willing to take whatever, it, whatever comes our way to tell this message because it's eternally true. And so, Heavenly Father, please help us not just to be hearers, but to be doers. And I pray that this body of people would increasingly be able to say, though we're very faulty and we have many faults and foibles, that we are followers of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. May you leave this good place today and may, may the one who declared he had all authority in heaven and on earth bless you by his grace and his truth to live this great message. God bless you.